We've been uh, studying through Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And we pick it back up today, as I said in verse 11, and we've learned that in Christ, He chose you. You were adopted into the family of God. Sinners, once alienated from Christ because of the nature in which we have, which is a sin nature. That sin isn't necessarily the things we do or the things we've done, but it's not doing that which God demands, and that's living a perfect life, a sinless life. And that is possible for who? Nobody. All of sin and fall short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus. Now, Jesus came out of heaven, took on humanity, came out of his glory, stepped down into the place of humanity. He was fully God, fully man, lived the perfect place in our lives, met the standard of God the Father, which is absolute perfection. And because you are in Christ, because you surrender your life to him, his righteousness has been placed upon your account. So in the sight of God, you are as righteous as is his son, Jesus Christ, positionally. And we read that Paul prayed in verses 15 to 23 of chapter 1 that we would understand who we are in Christ. That we would understand what God has done to bring us into the family of God through his son, Jesus Christ. And last week in chapter 2, we looked at verses 1 through 10 and we looked at what that practically looks like down here on earth. That he brought us out of sin, transgressions trespasses and sins, brought us out of that old sinful nature, and he birthed in us a new nature. And that new nature manifests Christ, Christ who is in us to a lost and dying world. In verse 8 of chapter 1, it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and not that of yourselves, it is a gift of God. Grace is getting what you don't deserve, and it's only by grace that we have everlasting life. He goes on to say in verse 10, But yet we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared before him, that we should walk in them. So it doesn't end at salvation. Christ works salvation in. We're called to work out the salvation that he's birthed in us. And that works itself out, practically speaking, in a life of righteousness that glorifies Christ. Always by the power of his Spirit. And then in verse 11, we have to understand he's talking to the church at Ephesus. He's talking to these Gentiles and... To us, as he says, therefore remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope, and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is, the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. Now, the theme all through Ephesians, and the reason that I chose to, to teach through Ephesians it's the first book, as the new pastors of this church, is because it continually talks about unity in Christ, oneness in Christ, that this is the body of Christ, the body of which he is the head of. He's the head, where the body, a body has many parts, and all those body parts are to bring glory to the head, Jesus Christ. 
unified. Christ said we are to be unified as one in Christ. John 17. You don't have to turn. I'll just quickly read this. Jesus prayed this to the Father. He prayed in verse 20. He says, I do not pray for these alone, but I also for those who will believe in me through their word that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that also they may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. The body of Christ. The body of Christ. To be one in Christ. Now, there's one thing that will, is for certain that will disrupt this unity or this oneness in Christ. It's prejudice. Prejudice will destroy that unity. And it has, over the centuries, destroyed that unity in Christ. Prejudice is an uncalled for generalization based on feelings of, it's in your handout, superiority. Feelings of superiority. It's an ugly sin and it's fueled hatred for centuries, all kinds of conflict. And what it does most of all is that it blinds people from God's word. Prejudice will blind you from the truth of God's word. If you remember, the prophet Jonah was called by God to go preach the good news to the Assyrians, and he hated the Assyrians, the Assyrians so much that he refused to go to Nineveh. But God gets his attention. He's swallowed by a great fish, belched up on the shore, and he goes in stinking, right, as a sinner, but by God's grace, he proceeds into Nineveh. He preaches the good news of God, but God's going to destroy this place lest he repent. They repented. He's so angry that he wishes that he were dead because they repented. Because he had such hatred for these people. Even one of Jesus' uh, disciples, Nathaniel. Philip found Nathanael and he said to him, We found him whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. We found him. This was Nathanael's response. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Right? Nathanael was a student of the word. He knew that the Messiah was about to come onto the scene. But yet... There was this content, these feelings of contempt for people from Nazareth. It was kind of on the outskirts of where Jews resided. It was just that last stop before the Gentile world, and he looked down at them. But yet, the Savior of the world grew up there. He grew up there. Blinding people to the gospel. The Jewish religious leaders themselves rejected Jesus because they, he didn't fit their idea of who the Messiah should be. He wasn't from Jerusalem. He wasn't trained in their synagogues. They rejected him. Prejudice. The body of Christ, and the main focus of our text today, is that we as believers are one in Christ, to be unified in him, to be one. And Christianity certainly shouldn't divide itself. Sometimes you can't get around this. And uh, obviously over the centuries, you know, we have... uh, the church has separated itself through certain denominational structures and so on. And it's not to be confused, though, that the church is to join itself as one with religious systems that profess another Christ. Okay? For instance, Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons profess a Christ, but as a different Christ which is contrary to the Bible. And anything that takes away from the essence and nature of who God is as defined through Scripture is something that is to be separated over. So we're not to confuse that. 2 Timothy 3.5 says, There will be those in the last days, although having a form of godliness, but denying its power, 
have nothing to do with them. It's a different Christ. If Jesus Christ is not professed and proclaimed to be the Son of God, fully God, fully man, atoned for the sins of the world on the cross, nothing added to it, physically died, rose again from the dead, born of a virgin, okay? If that belief isn't adhered to, that's, we separate over that. Those are, that's essential Christian doctrine. So we're not talking about being unified with those who claim Christ, but yet it's contrary to Scripture. There's secondary issues that the church has divided over, and it shouldn't divide over, over the, over the centuries. Now, granted, there are certain doctrines that churches adhere to that is like kind of junk food to the body. We're speaking to the body. You know if you feed your body full of junk food, right? You do not benefit. Amen? You don't benefit. The body needs a good diet. The spiritual body of Christ needs the true diet of sound doctrine. You see? Now, even though these denominational distinctions have been made, we are not to separate ourselves relationally or look down our nose at others, you see. In the context of our this separation that we're talking about today is between that of the Jewish believer in Christ in the first century and the Gentile believer in Christ in the first century. That's the context. So, as we've seen this new covenant work over the weeks, that this new covenant fulfillment of the old, the old covenant was between God and the nation of Israel. The fulfillment of the law, the fulfillment of all the signs, the fulfillment of all the foreshadowings, temple worship, the Holy of Holies, and all of that was fulfilled by Jesus of Nazareth, who is the Christ. The very fulfillment of Old Testament law. The new covenant. The fulfillment thereof. This is a covenantal relationship that we see throughout the Old Testament, God's passion for holiness as he established a relationship between himself and the nation of Israel simply because he chose to do that. And that from that itty-bitty nation would come, through the bloodline of those of Abraham, would come the promised one, the Messiah. And all these laws, ceremonial laws, the moral law, um, were set up to protect this little nation from being affected from pagan type of worship because through this nation would come the Savior of the world, Jesus Christ. But in this first century church, there was disunity between the Jew and the Gentile. So to get an understanding of what was going on, we have to go back to do a little biblical history. So therefore we'll begin with, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, right? In Genesis 1-1, the incredible story begins... From nothing, God creates something. He speaks it, and it's, the universe comes into existence. He, he creates time and space. He himself is outside of time and space. And then he does this great creative work of water, earth, sun, and moon, and then life. Vegetation, fish, animals, and more, most remarkably of all, he creates man in his image. In his, in his image, he created a male and female. To reflect what? His character. To simply reflect his character on earth, of which he delegated authority to Adam. In Genesis 3, the first humans disobey him. Everything that was delegated to Adam, he handed over to Satan. Prince of the power of the air, right? In chapter 4, we see a breakup. We see the first murder. And then later on in chapter 6 of Genesis... It says this, chapter 6, verse 5 says, Every intent of the thoughts of man's heart was only evil continually. So in Genesis 7, God decides to wipe out the earth with a flood. 
In Genesis 10, he begins to repopulate the earth through Adam, or through Noah, his sons, and their wives. And then by Genesis 11, here is man again, coming together, speaking one language, said, we will make a great name for ourselves. We will build this tower, known as the Tower of Babel, and we will reach the heavens, right? So God wanted man to go throughout the world and proclaim his name and properly represent him. They joined together, said, we'll make a name for ourselves, Tower of Babel. So he divides their languages. That's where the languages come from. They can't understand each other, so out of frustration, then they have to spread out, right? So you heard the term, you know, what are you babbling about? And someone's just, and you go, what are you babbling about? Comes from that, Tower of Babel. And then in Genesis 12, the most critical event between the creation, the fall, and through the coming of Jesus Christ, we see this most, incredible, most critical event in the Bible. The Lord calls Abraham. The Lord calls a man by the name of Abraham. And then his story sets off the rest of the Bible in God's plan of redeeming man back to himself. In Genesis 12, verse 1, we read this. Now the Lord had said to Abram, Get out of your country, from your family, from your father's house, to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you, and I will make your name great. Notice in chapter 11 of Genesis, man said, We'll make a name for ourselves. We'll make our name great. But God calls one man, and he said, I will make your name great. You see? You do things God way, God's way, he'll be glorified through your life. And you will see who you are in him. And he will use you like you have no idea. No idea. Do it your own way. You will struggle. You will fight. It'll be like beating your head against a wall in here. Just pick it out. Be like beating your head against a wall. So God introduces here the Abrahamic covenant. In chapter 15, this is all introduction right here, this is all introduction. In chapter 15 of Genesis, God actually makes that covenant. He makes the covenant. He promised Abram that his descendants would inherit a great land. He also said within that promise that they'll suffer 400 years of affliction. Right? And we know that they suffer 400 years of affliction under the oppression of Egypt. Genesis 17, God reaffirms this covenantal promise with, mark this, with a sign. With a sign. God changes his name from Abram, which means exalted father, to Abraham, which means father of many nations. See, his name was Abram, father of exalted father. He had no children at the time. Right? God changes his name to Abraham representing a changed relationship. When you came into Christ, you have a new nature. You're a new person. Abraham was a new man. And then in Genesis 17, this sign is the sign of the promise, the sign of the covenant. And just listen to this, Genesis 17:10. God says, This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male child among you shall be circumcised. And you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised, every male child in your generations. So circumcision, the cutting away of the, of the male foreskin. It became a symbol of belonging physically and ethnically to the lineage of Abraham. 
right into this great nation of Israel. Now, there were health benefits to it, and that disease could be held under the foreskin, so it physically it was cut off. Okay? But the symbolism was much more than just the physical act. Much greater. Because it had to do with cutting away sin and being cleansed. That was the symbolism of the circumcision. Much greater than the physical act, you see. Because the male organ throughout time has represented the disseminating seed of sin that infects every human being. So that physical act, though it had physical qualities and health, had a bigger, it was a sign that pointed to something greater than itself. The cutting away of sin and cleansing. So, it was much more than the physical act. We've got to keep that in our mind because it's part of our text today. So, God's intent from Abraham to Moses was to establish this covenant, establish the law, the moral law, ceremonies, and all of these ceremonial and, and, and laws for the nation of Israel to separate them from pagan nations. And he, was, he called them to be a light to these surrounding nations. So the sign of the covenant pointed to that reality. So that being our introduction, keep in mind that the Jews took on this sign of the covenant. It became their badge of honor. Them having been given the laws of God to them, they became prideful and boastful as being God's chosen people. Forgetting the fact that they were supposed to be light to the world, separate from the world, not taken out of the world, just taken out from the practices of false religious systems. To draw Gentiles to the one true God. You see? That leads us to verse 11, Ephesians chapter 2. That was our introduction. Therefore, remember, we'll stop right there. Therefore, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh... Not only should the Ephesians remember this, we must remember that. Remember this right here. Everything up to this point. Since God breathed life into you, we once walked according to the course of this world, right? Alienated from God. Conducting ourselves in the lust of our flesh. All the sinful desires within us as non-believers, we lived according to those desires. And at the time we were dead, as we learned last week, in trespasses and in sins. And then we got to the word but last week. But God, right? God in his what? Mercy. Because he loved us, he raised us up from spiritual death, breathed life into us, and transformed that nature from a sinful nature into a Christ-like nature. Because if you're in Christ today, you have an everlasting relationship with him. So since God has done great things for us, he's basically saying, look, remember your former condition. Don't forget where you've come from. Church at Ephesus, right? In us also, amen? Please, don't forget what he's brought you out of. If you don't forget what he's brought you out of, I don't care how good your little life was before Christ, outwardly speaking. We know that the heart is deceitful and wicked above all things, right? Now, you may have some convict rolling the yards down here at, at, at the prison down in Otai who's a three-time murderer or whatnot. Okay? If he's come to faith in Christ and he's truly in Christ, he is just as righteous in the sight of God as the little old lady who lives down the street who's never taken a smoke or a toke or anything else, right? The nature's the same. And it's only in Christ that that nature is transformed. 
the dude in prison. Now he may do, you know, life for his crime, but that's a consequence of his sin on the outward, and that's right where he should be anyway. But because of the grace of God, he brings people out of that place of dep depravity, unable to find favor in the sight of God in your own strength. So don't forget that you were once lost. Amen? Because I tell you what, a lot of people grow up in church and they get this puffed up feeling as though I've been in church all my life and this dude rolls in with all these tattoos. He looks like a convict who just got out of the yard. And they kind of look down at him over their nose. You know what I'm saying? I have a friend who's literally going through that right now. He was a big shot in town and been down a couple times. It means he's been in prison a couple times. And, and uh, he's been so walking strong in, in the faith for a year and a half. And he's getting tried left and right. Temptations, man, coming knocking day after day. But by God's grace, he's persevering through it and he's growing in Christ. And all of the old school boys that he used to run with, they're, they're looking at him. They see his life is different. They know it for sure. But he, he, one thing he's, he's noticed is he's gone into churches and he, he senses the people that are in there, they kind of look at him like this. Whoa. Right? Unity, man. He brought you out of as much sin as he was in, or me or the next guy. Unified in Christ. Okay? Look at verse 11 again. Therefore, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands. Okay, here it is. Everything that follows this opening in verse 11, everything else in verse 11, everything else in verse 12 is simply a strengthening of this idea that says, therefore, remember. Okay? Remember from where you've come from. So in context to the Ephesians, they were called uncircumcision, okay? The Jews will look at them and go, oh, these uncircumcised Gentiles, right? Remember David and Goliath? Goliath is crying out, ranting and raving against God. And David cries out, <clears throat> as far as this, uh, this Philistine, he says, this uncircumcised Philistine, what is it that he should defy the armies of the living God? And then he kills them, like nothing, right? So this, is, this was nothing new. Called on circumcision by those who've been physically circumcised, which was the nation of Israel. See, to the Jews, it expressed this self-righteous hatred. They had this sign that, in their minds, it elevated them above everyone else. But it was nothing but a sign, you see. In, this feeling arose because they figured that because they had this outward sign and this covenant with God, that because of their identity nationally... That because of that identity, that when they die, they automatically go be with God. Automatically. But it's important to note this. Just because God chose Israel to be a light to the world, he did not exclude Gentiles from coming to faith in himself. It's important to note this. Exodus 12:48. When a stranger dwells with you and wants to keep the Passover, that stranger is someone outside of the Jews, and wants to keep the Passover to the Lord... Let all his males be circumcised, and then let him come near and keep it. And he shall be as a native of the land. The sign of the covenant was circumcision. If they wanted to worship the one true God, they were welcomed in, but they had to take on the sign. Just because they took on the sign, meaning circumcision, doesn't mean they were saved. It was the sign pointed to something greater than itself, which was the substance, you see. 
the one who saves. The substance of the sign is God himself. It's not the sign that saved, it's the substance of the sign. Are you with me? Okay, mark this, Isaiah 56.6. Also the sons of a stranger that join themselves to the Lord to serve him and to love the name of the Lord to be his servants, even them I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. God's intention was not just to keep Israel as the only ones that had saving hope. He said any Gentile outside of my little nation that wants to come in, if they repent, right? Because that circumcision was much more than an outward sign. It pointed to something greater, which we'll get to in a minute. See, this sign was nothing but an outward act. Very important. It was an outward act, but it became a false sense of security to those who had attachment to the nation of Israel. The sign was a false sense of security that they were okay with God. You got it? They trusted in, the, in, in ceremony as their means of salvation. They trusted in their association with those ceremonies as their salvation. But the sign of the covenant was no personal guarantee to eternal life with God. Listen to this, Romans 2.28. Just mark this down. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision that is of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. You see that circumcision which was an outward physical act, right? And it, it was a picture of cutting away sin and cleansing. It pointed to, where's the sin? It's in the heart of every human being. This was nothing new in the New Testament. This is simply an echo of Old Testament truth. Mark this down, Jeremiah 4.4. 4. God says, circumcise yourselves to the Lord and take away the foreskins of your heart. Deuteronomy 10.16, Old Testament. Circumcise the foreskin of your heart and be stiff-necked no longer. Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. Okay, you get the idea of what was going on there? You get the idea of the pride that the nation of Israel boasted in because they had this sign of the covenant? Guess what? And right into the first century church, man has not changed at all. Okay? Because there are professing Christians today that adhere to some sign in which that's their security. So there's people who say they're Christians because they adhere to some sign, but they're not saved at all. Just like many of the Israelites won't be in heaven, which we'll see that in a minute too. In the Christian church, we have signs of baptism. Right? Sign of confirmation. People go through confirmation classes growing up, and because they just kind of utter some words and say, yeah, you know, I believe intellectually Jesus is this and that, you know, I sign the little card, and that sign is a false security. Communion is another sign of the new covenant. By taking communion doesn't get anyone into heaven, amen? No more so than having the foreskin of a male packed off, right? Church attendance doesn't get you in. I'll give you an illustration of this. If you came up to me after service and said, can you please give me directions to Interstate 5 South? 
Okay? I say, yeah, no problem. Go out to Marina Boulevard down here, go south, about uh, probably a half mile, and you'll see a sign that says I-5. Okay? you got to go down that ramp to Garnett Avenue. You're going to go under the Interstate 5 overpass, stay in the right lane, and it'll take you right onto I-5 south. Right? Okay, well, if I'm driving home, all of a sudden, you're on the side of the road, because you, you saw the I-5 sign, you stopped, you got out, you embraced it, you're going, yes, we're here. I'll stop and go, what's up? Are you okay? You say, we made it. Did you make it to I-5 or did you make it to the sign? All you made it to was the sign that pointed to something greater than itself. You see? The circumcision made with hands was nothing but a sign that pointed to something greater than itself. Baptism is an outward sign, and it points to an inward reality. When you become a true believer in Jesus Christ, you repent of your sins, you get baptized. You're identifying with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ that your sins have been washed and cleansed. You have died in Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who? Who lives in me. I've been crucified in Christ. Buried. Raised. Made new. That is nothing but a sign. Going into some water in Mission Bay or some tub up in this stage doesn't get you to heaven. There's nothing in the water, man, that's going to get you there. It is simply a sign that leads to the substance. That's all it pointed to. Leave your finger here, right here in Ephesians, and go back to Romans chapter 4. That's a great sound right there. Shuffling of pages. Romans chapter 4. Context is blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, right? If you're in Christ, are your lawless deeds forgiven? Yes, a big amen right there. Amen? Amen. So that's the context. Verse 9. Does this blessedness then come upon the circumcised only or upon the uncircumcised also? For we say that faith was accounted, accredited to Abraham for righteousness. How then was it accounted? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of righteousness of faith, which he had while still uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all those who believe, though they are uncircumcised, that righteousness might be imputed to them also. Abraham was accredited righteousness 14 years before he was ever circumcised. His righteousness came by the faith that he had in the substance of the one who gave the sign, you see. His faith was in the one who was the author of the sign. His faith was in the one in whom the sign pointed to. So God, just like you, accredited him or put it, placed on his account the righteousness of himself. And if you're in Christ here, your sign of baptism was not salvation, it pointed to the substance of that sign. The righteousness of Christ has been placed on your account, you see. There's no man or woman of the Jewish descent that was or will ever be saved by their national heritage or the association with the sign of the covenant or the nation of Israel. Romans 9, 6 says this, They are not all Israel who are of Israel, nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham. That relationship does not guarantee everlasting life to the individual, you see. You guys remember in Matthew 8, 
a centurion, a, a, a Roman soldier, came to Jesus. He said, Lord, my, uh, my servant is sick. He's fallen ill. Jesus said, okay, I'll go heal him. He goes, wait, Lord, I'm not worthy that you come under, my, under the roof of my home. As I'm a man of authority and I have people under me, I tell them to do this or do that, and he goes and he does it because he's under authority. And I know so, Lord, also that if you just say the word, that he'll be healed. This is Jesus' response to that. Matthew chapter 8, verse 10, he said, When Jesus heard it, he marveled. And he said to those who followed, Assuredly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. And I say to you that many will come from east and west with Abraham. They will sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom, those of Israel, the sons of the kingdom, will be cast into outer darkness and there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You know why? They didn't believe. Circumcised one after another. The sign did not guarantee salvation. It was a sign or seal of promise. It goes back to the substance, the promiser. Is that a word? The one who promised. Check this out. Israel was first in salvation opportunity. Okay? They were first in salvation opportunity, but they're first in judgment responsibility. Right? How much greater was their knowledge than the Gentiles surrounding them? Huh? Like this much. Amen? Same is true if you've sat in church all your life and you haven't submitted your life to the Lordship of Christ, you'll be judged according to what you know. I'll tell you what, if you haven't submitted to Christ, you're responsible for everything you know. Dangerous. If you don't submit. I beg you. So they were knowledgeable of the law. They were knowledgeable of the prophets and the messianic promise of Christ. So for Abraham and his descendants, circumcision was a seal of promise. Okay, check this out. The guarantee of his inheritance, right? You guys remember here back in uh, Ephesians? When you heard the gospel and believed, chapter 1, verse 13, check it out. In him you also trusted that you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom having believed you were what? Sealed. Sealed. Verse 14, who is the guarantee of our inheritance? The sign was a guarantee, a promise to those who truly believed. It was an outward sign that pointed to a greater reality. It was circumcision of the heart. Right? There's plenty of uncircumcised Gentiles in the world that will be in heaven because their heart was circumcised and they were right with God through a relationship. Right? The thief on the cross that died next to Jesus, he said, Lord, remember when you come into your kingdom, he said, most assuredly I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. Dude wasn't baptized. Come on. Right? The substance of the sign was hanging on the cross. The fulfillment of the signs was hanging on the cross. Who guaranteed an inheritance to him that day. So there was ongoing conflict and contempt between these two groups, Jewish believers in Christ and Gentile believers in Christ. They both believed. Just as the Jews had contempt for the Gentiles, the Gentiles also looked at the Jews as the enemies of the world. Enemies of the world. You saw that through Hitler, right? He thought the same thing. People still think it today. So throughout history, we've seen uh, Israel become the victim of many nations. 
And even in the early church, there was this conflict. See, Jews would argue that Judaism came first, right? And then salvation would come. This is after Christ died and rose again. You had to become a Jew by being circumcised, and then salvation came through the process of circumcision. They were adhering to the Sabbath rule, right? And we, we celebrate on Sunday, as did the early church, in celebration of the resurrection, the one who fulfilled the law. That's why we meet on Sunday. The Sabbath was Saturday. They wanted to adhere to legalistic rule of Sabbath worship and circumcision. So if someone said, yeah, I came to faith in Christ, okay, man, you've got to get circumcised to come into the family. That's why Paul wrote the letter to the Galatians. That's the context of it all. That right there. Look at verse 12. You know, that thing to fall back to tradition, we see that today. You know, have you ever seen someone, or perhaps yourself, who've come to faith in Christ having grown up in Catholicism, right? And you're just, you're given to those certain types of traditions. And sometimes it just takes time to wean, wean yourself off of those things. You know what I'm saying? So if you've got a friend who came out of Catholicism, they've come to faith in Christ, you don't have to pound them on the head because they still, like, go to Mass in the morning or something, you know? It kind of takes time to wean yourself off the traditions and get to the substance, you see. It was the same was true of the early church. Those who came to faith who were Jewish, it took them a bit to, to, to wean themselves off of the, the legalism, you see. So have mercy. Verse 12. Let me read 11 again. Therefore remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So here it is. What opened up in, in, in verse 11 is continued here in verse 12. The, Mosaic, the, um, the covenant that was given, check it out now, the covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, all the other covenants of God were wrapped up in that one covenant. The Mosaic covenant being the law, Right? The Palestinian government covenant and God's promise of that land to the nation of Israel, as well as the Davidic covenant, David, King David and his throne, that through that bloodline would come the Messiah. And then the new covenant. They were all wrapped up in that one covenant that we read about in the opening of this message. You with me? Gentiles, here it is. Gentiles were strangers to it all. They were strangers to it all. They weren't part of that covenantal agreement with the nation of Israel. That's what he's talking about here. See, the nation of Israel was a theocracy. Early on in the nation of Israel, they were a theocracy, which was a government ruled by God himself. Remember that? We live in a democracy. Government for the people, by the people. You know, we vote, and then we have representation of ourselves, and so on. That was a theocracy. But they, Gentiles, were without hope, without God in the world. So it's important to note, this is important. They weren't aliens of God because some contempt on God's part, okay? They made up all their false religious systems on their own. Just because they didn't have the law and the covenants and promises didn't mean they were without accountability, Okay? They were fully and completely accountable. Are you with me? They weren't aliens because God just didn't like them. We saw that in the promises earlier through the Old Testament. That 
He wanted his house to be their house through Israel being the light. We're going somewhere with this. They were not, the Gentiles were not accountable to the law that was given to Israel. They were accountable to another law. You know, a lot of people ask, well, what about the pygmies in the jungles, right? What about the spearman down in the tribes of some faraway place who's never heard the gospel? How can they go to hell? Can God send them to hell, right? Have you heard it? Have you said it? <laughs> the answer is in Romans chapter 2. So keep your finger here. Go back to Romans again. Verse 11, chapter 2, for there is no partiality with God. How much partiality? None, right? Verse 12, for as many have his sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And as many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. Here you have two perishing parties, one according to the law and one without. Okay? Verse 13, for not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. To be justified means to be declared free from all blame. Okay? Christ met the law on your, on your behalf and my behalf, so we're justified in Christ. You got it? Verse 14. For when Gentiles who do not have the law, by nature do the things in the law, these also, not having the law, are a law to themselves, who show the work of the law written in their, what? Hearts. Their conscience also bearing witness in between themselves, their thoughts, accusing or else excusing them in the day when God will judge the secrets of men's heart by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. It's the law written on the heart. Moses before the law, man, before he killed the Egyptian, it said he looked this way and he looked that way. And then he off the dude and buried him in the sand and then he was afraid and he left. Right? Conscience. He knew it was wrong before he did it. Go to some third world country and the dude who steals from his neighbors, he's going to look around first. Right? Because it's wrong. It's a law written in the heart. The dude who's out in the jungle somewhere, the Bible says that the heavens declare the glory of God. Just creation itself. And if he's looking up to the heavens and he wants to know this God, God will reveal himself to him. How does that work? I have no idea. God will allow a supernaturally an angel to appear to him to give him the gospel of Jesus Christ. Or he'll prompt one of you from San Diego, California to learn yourself the languages of the land and go be a missionary like Matt and his wife. And they'll get the gospel. God's sovereign. Okay? Now, they're responsible, and if it doesn't come to them, why is that? The, quest, the answer to that question is in Romans chapter 1. Turn back a page to verse 18, chapter 1. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who do this. You know what they do? They suppress the truth. They suppress it in their what? Unrighteousness. Men love darkness more than the light. The light came into the world and the world rejected the light, Jesus Christ. They suppress the truth because they love sin. That's called general revelation. Every human being on earth has been given general revelation through that which is created. The heavens declare the glory of God, man. You're not going to look up at the stars and go, oh yeah, that came from a blob and there was a big bang and then I came from some scum on some water and then, you know, grew an eye up here and then fins and then legs and here we are today in the reproductive system that's so supernatural. It's amazing. 
We came from that. No. God, in the beginning, created the heavens and the earth. Verse 19, because what may be known of God is manifest in them. For God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made. Even his eternal power in Godhead, so that they are, are without what? Okay, but here's what they do. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were they thankful, but they came futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were dark, and professing to be wise, they became fools. And they changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made with like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. They, then they go on and they worship everything but God. And they make man, they make God in their image instead of realizing that they were made in the image of God, deserving of worship. So because I resist that, I suppress his truth because I love my sin. I will suppress the truth revealed to me through general revelation, right? And I'll make up God in my own thoughts. Well, I say Jesus is like this. Now, my Jesus wouldn't send anyone to hell for not believing in him the way that you say the Bible says, right? He's given one way, man. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to me. No one comes to the Father except through me. It's really clear. There's one road. There's one way. It's the one who died and rose again. No excuse. Verse 12, again, it says, having no hope without God in the world. So they didn't have these covenants. They didn't have this relationship as Israel did. But yet they were without what? Excuse. They were without excuse. Okay, we've got to roll. Okay, look at verse 13. But now. Here's that word but again. Okay? But. This parallels the ver verse... Um, 4 of chapter 2, but God, who is rich in his mercy, right? But God allowed you to realize that you're a sinner, right? But God breathed spiritual life into you by his grace. Same thing here. But now, now, but in Christ you have, you who are once far off have been brought near by the what? By the blood. But God. This high merit comes from union with Christ. A union. When you became a believer, you stepped into an everlasting what? Union. Unbreakable. Unbreakable. <clears throat> okay, check it out. In the Old Testament, the Jews, they were the ones who were near to God because they had the covenants, the relationship, and the temple made with what? Hands. And Gentiles were referred to as being far off. Jews near relationally, Gentiles far off. Okay? Isaiah 49.1 says, Listen, O coastlands, to me, and take heed, you peoples afar off. In Isaiah 57.19, we see the de designation of both Jew and Gentile, where it says, Peace, peace to him who is far off, and to him who is near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. God's grace. It, Peter's sermon at Pentecost in, in the book of Acts he says in Acts 2.39, For the promises to you and to your children to, and to all who are far off, as many as the Lord God will call, Jew and Gentile alike. He brought us near. The Ephesians, as well as every one of us, we were far off. Amen? He brought us near. And we saw that in verses 2 or 3 of chapter 2 last week. Verse 13, by the blood. This explains the words at the beginning of the verse, meaning in Christ, right? Because it's in Christ. If you're in Christ, you're covered by His blood. If you're covered by the blood, you're in Christ. If you're not covered by the blood, you're not in Christ. And if you're not in Christ, you're not covered by the blood. 
Amen? The Bible says that the life is in the blood. And without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. There is no forgiveness. It's by the blood of Christ, right? The one is brought into the family of God. Not because you've been baptized in, I don't care if you're baptized in the Jordan 20 times. If you're not covered by the blood, you're not in Christ. The sign doesn't save, it's the substance of the sign that saves. Circumcision, for the Jew, the sign points to the substance greater than itself. Verse 14, here's the confirmation and illustration. For he himself is our what? Peace. Without grace, you know, there's no peace. Grace and peace be multiplied to you, right? Grace and peace that's in Christ Jesus. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. There is no grace without, there's no peace without grace. Who made us both one, right? Jew and Gentile made one. Just because they had the covenants, the Gentiles didn't. They're made one in Christ, you see. As has broken down the middle wall of separation. Jesus Christ is the perfect peacemaker, amen? To bring Jew and Gentile together alike, that would be an impossible task for a man, amen? But those things that are possible with man, all things are possible with God, right? Many things separated the Jews and the Gentiles. Th those worshipers, even in the temple, there was a wall of separation between where the Jews could worship and where the Gentiles could worship, right? There was a wall of separation. They were the ones afar off. The Gentiles. But in Christ, figuratively, that wall was broken down. That wall of separation was broken down. In Acts 21, Paul was arrested and they were going to kill him because he brought his Greek friends in. They accused him anyway of having passed over that wall. So Gentiles that would come into the Jewish area, they would. Now everything was unclean, right? So they arrested Paul. They were, going to they were going to kill him in Acts 21, 31. You can look at that later. But that wall was destroyed in Christ. Literally, when Christ died on the cross, okay, even beyond the, the Jewish court was the Holy of Holies where the high priest could go only once a year to atone for the sins of the nation of Israel. But there was a thick curtain, top to bottom, the Bible says that when Jesus died on the cross, there was a great earthquake, and that veil was torn asunder top to bottom. Which it was literally torn, which reveals that we as believers in Christ have access to the throne of God. The Holy of Holies, because of His sacrifice. Shredded apart, full access, Jew and Gentile alike. One in Christ. You go to church all your life, you've been in church all your life since you were a little kid, and you look you look with contempt at someone else who God has brought out of a miserable life, and you look down your nose at them, just remember, you're one with that brother or sister, man, period. You are no better than them. If you think you are, then you're prejudiced. The wall of separation was destroyed. Fulfilling the demands of the law, that was Christ, verse 15, having abolished in his flesh the enmity that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances so as to create in himself what? One new man from the two, thus making what? Peace. Abolish means to, to reduce to inactivity. Enmity is hostility, strife, and hatred. He's destroyed it. If you have, now, if you're a born-again believer in Christ and you have hostility toward another brother, that's your sin. Because you have the capacity and the ability to love with the love of Christ. So if that hindrance is in the way against another brother or sister and you're not unified in him, that is your flesh rearing up and you must crucify it. 
Amen? Because He's made us one in Christ. It's His... The flesh of Christ met the perfect standard. He came like a human being. He took on human flesh and met the standard of God the Father, which was perfection. Met the law's standard, man. He met the law's standard. Perfection in Christ. And it's because of His righteousness that's been placed on your account. Your account today. And the, the purpose was to create one man from the two. Jew and Gentile. That was His purpose from the beginning. There, in, in Christ, there is no male, there is no female. There is no Jew, there is no Gentile. We are one in Christ. Man and women have distinct roles within the body. Amen? Okay, Jews and Gentiles had distinct roles through the plan of redemption. But those who are truly gods are one in Him. There's no favoritism, right? That's what he's saying here. Because both groups, Jew and Gentile alike, were... Both equal objects of God's wrath. Because they, the Jews had the law, the outward law, the Ten Commandments, the moral law, <clears throat> the religious law, the whole nine. And Gentiles had the law where? Written in the heart. Christ fulfilled all those laws. And he made, through his crucifixion, all of us one in what? Christ. We, believers, we are of the Judeo-Christian faith. Without the nation of Israel, without the Jews, there'd be no Christianity. Amen? God used the nation of Israel with that covenantal promise, a sign of the covenant, all the way back to Abraham, and we are all within that covenant, you see. Through faith in Jesus Christ, the fulfillment of every covenant, the fulfillment of all the law. That's what he's saying. He's made the two one, brought near by the blood. Signs do nothing. They only point to the substance. Amen? You know, I have a friend, uh, one of my best friends in the world. I'm getting ready to close up here. He grew up in the Bronx, New York. He's a black man, and I'm a white boy, as you can see. And we are like this, boy. We're boys. He's in ministry. I'm in ministry. Um, and we have so much in common because we are in Christ. He took a little kid from the Bronx, and he took this white boy who spent some time in the Midwest and then came out here as a teenager. We're one in Christ. We share commonality, you see. If we didn't have Christ, highly unlikely we'd be hanging together. Highly unlikely. He was a superstar. He played NFL. He's a great athlete. We would have nothing in common. He and I have talked about doing a tour, like a month, and traveling down south. Okay? All black churches, then up in the Midwest, all white churches. And then the all black churches, I would, I'm going to go rolling in. And we, we want to document all this, you see. And we've talked about this. We may do it. Walk in and just see the reaction from the body of Christ. And then we're going to head north. Right? We're going to go beyond the Bible Belt right up into the heart of the land, right? And then we're going to let my brother walk into some white churches out in some farmlands. <laughs> and we're going to document what goes down. And then we're going to walk out together. Word, brother. Some, some prideful, lifelong church attender, right? 
all puffed up in his little righteous little role in his church, has some decrepit, wretched sinner who God's breathed life into, and he's a ex-thief, ex-con, I don't care, fill in the blank. You are one with that brother, man. One in Christ. So if you got prejudice or contempt for someone else who God's brought into the family, it must be repented of. Because we are one in Christ. So he uses this example of what was going on in the day between the Jewish believer in Christ and the Gentile believer in Christ. The Jews held on to these traditions and the sign of the covenant, which is nothing but a sign, again, that points to the substance. Your baptism, your tradition, whatever, points to the substance. It's Jesus Christ. And it's in him that we are one, united and as believers in Christ. Common bond. Prejudice is sin. Brought near into Christ. One in Him. Differing gifts. Differing personalities, right? Think about this. Before Christ, you hang out, you, you probably would hang out with people who were like-minded or had similar personalities, right? And if they were different personalities, it was probably because they loved you and they probably stoked your little ego, right? And you would, so you keep them around because they, you know, they boost you up a little bit. So they were in your little group for that purpose. In Christ, you're going to share and find common ground with someone who had a 180-degree type of lifestyle before you, and we share something in common. It's the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ alone, which covers the whole body. And then he's gifted you uniquely so that we can function as a body, right? Healthy, right? Healthy, right? Because my big toes are doing a good job today, by the way. Because if I didn't have them, I'd lose my balance, right? They're helping me keep my balance up here. As the mouth, you see. And all of your body parts function, right? Spiritually speaking, Christ is the head. We're the body. He wants us to function in union together. Amen?